Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hardcore Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by um, Mr. High and Mr. Low. Mr. Low, uh, we are very excited to start this podcast, and the purpose of it is to dive deep into topics that relate to Bitcoin, economics, and other related uh, things. How are you doing today, Mr. Low? Mr. Lowe here is doing quite well and apparently speaking about himself in third person. Mr. High, as you explained, we will go back and forth on many topics. Uh, a lot of the topics we will just come up uh, with right before the podcast and talk about uh, the topic de jour, if you will, in crypto land and discuss it from various angles. I think it'll be interesting to come at it from both an uh, libertarian crypto point of view, which is mainstream in the community, but also bring in other points of view, such as, you know, from political side, from a financial market side, from a strategic side, from a consumer adoption side, and obviously take into account both U.S. and international points of view. So um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm very excited. Absolutely, me too. And we're going to try to kind of dive deep and ask the questions that are not asked uh, in other podcasts. So that's, that's what we're going to try to do. So how about for the topic of today, uh, we can discuss about the store of value concept. Um, specifically, can Bitcoin be a better store of value than the stock market? So a very interesting uh, concept, Mr. High. And I think we should, you know, I would like to add to this a little bit. You know, you said can, and maybe both of us would agree that it can. I mean, there's always a possibility, but we should dive into that. I would like to also add, is it right now? Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, is it right now brings along a dimension of both time, adoption, uh, the adoption curve of, of a, a new asset where obviously the inception of a, of a Bitcoin asset versus some of the more traditional financial market assets. So we should discuss, you know, is it the best choice for folks now, uh, for folks that are thinking about a short-term, medium-term, long-term horizon? And like you said, can it become a much better store of value or much better investment, I would say, right, in the long term? So what do you think, Mr. High? So let's differentiate uh, the idea of a store of value from the idea of an investment, because uh, those are two different things. And Love it already. Love it already. Yeah. So um, the way I'm thinking about it is a store of value is supposed to be something that's liquid and that's relatively stable um, and not necessarily something that's speculative and yielding, you know, high returns. But, uh, but definitely a place where you can park your money and keep the value, um, you know, hopefully grow it. But it's very different, for example, from a venture capital fund or some kind of very speculative investment where you take a, a certain percentage of, of likelihood that the money will go to zero. But then there's also a small likelihood that you'll get a tremendous return. So on average, it can be good, but the risk there is high. Um, and a store of value is, uh, for example, people use real estate uh, as a store of value. People use gold as a store of value. And if you look at those uh, assets, you see that they don't appreciate, you know, uh, tremendously, but they protect uh, users from um, the things that erode value, which is the central bank that just keeps printing money and, um, and basically taxing it, it inflation is basically a wealth tax of six to seven percent every year 
many people don't know that because they just think that the inflation is the price inflation. But let's maybe I'll, I'll just give two sentences on, on why I think this is a problem because many people say, what's the problem? We don't need to store, you know, the dollar is a great store of value. We're not living in Venezuela. Uh, you know, it's stable. It's good. Prices go up by like 2% per year. It's not a big deal. So why not just keep the money in dollars? And the answer is that if you look at the balance sheets of central banks um, across the world, the money supply is actually inflating at around 7% per year. And the reason why we don't see prices uh, going up by 7% is because humanity is becoming better and better at uh, producing things more cheaply um, through technology. And so if you can think about the 7% wealth tax that the central bank gives every single year, it takes 7% of our money. Uh, you only see it as a 2% price inflation and a 5% just uh, technological improvement that you don't get to benefit from. Would you think that that's a correct description of the problem that we're trying to solve by having a store of value? Well, I do, but there's there are a lot of topics there. You, uh, definitely the central bank route um, is an important topic. But you, let me break back up into something you said originally. You said a store of value is something that reduces the volatility especially, and is liquid in the short term uh, and doesn't potentially have as much upside as VC. I mean, I would argue that, you know, where we are in crypto right now, theoretically, uh, given the supply-demand functions, especially Bitcoin, the upside is much greater than the upside in VC, right? And the volatility is also is also mm-hmm. great. So maybe we should align the concept of store value. Again, the time period and time horizon here is very, very important. If we're talking about 20, 30 years, Bitcoin may be an incredible store of value. Assuming everything increases and Bitcoin is still around, which is a whole other debate, but I let's say I'm I'm on board here. If mm-hmm. we're talking about a year or six month time horizon, then Bitcoin is probably not the best store of value just because of the sheer volatility of the asset. And we just don't know what will happen because the markets are still nascent. The folks, the liquidity in these markets is is minuscule compared to the global financial markets, and thus there's natural volatility. Uh, crypto or not crypto, any asset of this nature would have natural volatility, mm-hmm. and so and so, you know, I I think if we're talking about a long term horizon, let's have that debate versus a short term horizon. So why don't we agree on the horizon we're talking about because it also will help us have an apples to apples comparison with some of the other financial instruments. Yeah, I completely agree, and that's a great point because actually Bitcoin today is some kind of a combination of you know a potential store of value plus a VC type investment because we're still betting you know that the technology will be adopted. Um, but you know, let's assume a, a very long time horizon, like let's assume a, a thirty-year time horizon. So imagine that you have some money right now um, that is enough for you to retire on and you want uh, to retire in 30 years, and you want to have that money, uh, whatever this money can buy you today in terms of purchasing power, you want to have it in 30 years to be able to buy the same things, and hopefully even a little bit more, like if it appreciates a little bit. Uh, That's the time horizon I'm thinking about. So it's interesting. So there's two things in this case, right? So let's agree. Okay, I agree in that time horizon. Then there's actually three things. One is the appreciation of the asset. Right. Mm-hmm. Two is the is the inflationary exchange of that asset into some sort of spending 
money, if you will. So what do I mean by number two? I mean, you know, if there is inflation in the market, can you exchange this asset for some sort of common courtesy of the day in 30 years? That could be Bitcoin, that could still be US dollars, it could be Chinese yuan and so on and so forth. It doesn't really matter what it is. The point is, can you exchange into some sort of liquid assets used to create any kind of exchange? Mm-hmm. And at what rate? So wh- what does inflation affect? Um, and I think third is liquidity, just the sheer liquidity. Can you come in and out of the asset, right? Mm-hmm. And so we should consider Bitcoin, let's take Bitcoin out of all the crypto assets compared to other financial instruments. Let's break those down into something like bonds, mutual funds, stocks, uh, you know, high yield stocks, so to speak, or, or risky stocks, VC private equity in terms of the returns that are needed for each category class. I'm going from something low, like bonds of a couple of percentage points into something like private equity that requires, you know, uh, five, six X return within the first three or four years. And so, uh, so as we think about those asset classes, assuming you as a, you know, pure libertarian world, you as an investor are able to put $1 in each one of these buckets and have the ability to put $1 in each one of these buckets, which bucket do you choose, right? Obviously, the very stable theoretically asset is bonds that are going to give you a certain percentage point plus coupon perpetually or for 30 years or for 10 years, whatever the bond is is there for, it gets exchanged into the local currency of the day that they could that currency could be inflated. So the inflation risk of bonds uh, of the currency you can get from bonds is pretty high. Right. Yeah. Now, if you don't mind, I wanted to narrow down this conversation to the stock market because, uh, first of all, bonds, in my opinion, are just a terrible store of value. They have had a negative real interest uh, for for many, many years now, because I define negative real interest not in terms of prices, but in terms of the share of the monetary pie that you hold. So again, the government is inflating the money supply at 7% per year. And you can see there's, uh, there's a, a website called Crypto Voices. They do a really, really good job at taking all the central banks of all the world and seeing how much money they print in terms of their market share. So Venezuela prints a lot of money, but they're a tiny share of the market. Uh, You know, China prints less money and they're a huge share of the market. So they kind of, they kind of do a weighted average of it in dollar terms. And you see that it's really 7% per year. So if you just hold dollars, you lose 7% every year. Now, bonds have not paid a 7% yield for a very long time. I don't know when, I think since the 70s or 80s or something, um, the yields haven't been 7%. And so I'm just talking about like what could actually keep your value, you know, keep your purchasing power. So that's why I think the stock market is like the best um, candidate for it because you could buy an index fund and, you know, pretty reliably in 30 years, you could say that you could expect a return of like 7%, 10%, something like that. Depends on how you count on it do you reinvest dividends or not uh so that's kind of my base case of of this is a store of value and real estate is also the same if you take a mortgage uh where the interest rate of the mortgage is lower than the appreciation of your house uh you know more or less if you look at real estate it also appreciates at around seven eight percent per year uh, after all expenses so those are the two things that usually people use as a kind of store of value. Um, the question so, is, can Bitcoin outperform them? 
Yeah, so fair enough. So let's take let's take this and let's co- come back to an, uh, a conversation you and I had previously to this um, about inflation, right? Because we can let's argue about the upside in a second. Let's park that. Let's first talk about inflation. So with inflation, you know, assuming uh, and I agree with you by the way on the premise of quantitative easing and what what's happening with printing money, especially given the large debt burdens. Um, that the U.S. and other countries have, but specifically the U.S. Yeah, um, there's and even, no way they can pay all of their obligations exactly. without keeping printing at 7 8% per year. There's just no way it can work. Exactly. Now, the question, though, is which one of these assets, let's take three asset classes, uh, stocks slash mutual funds, that's one, cryptos, two, and real estate is three. So which one of these asset classes are best inflation-proof Right, that's going to be criteria number one, and I think criteria number two would be which one of them have the biggest upside, and then through there we can figure out, you know, which one uh, is a better investment or a better store of value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, a great point. Yeah, so from an inflation perspective, right? I think we need to understand. Let's say crypto, for instance, you take one dollar, you buy a certain, you know, amount of Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever you want to buy, you hold on to that crypto. You can exchange it at any point for whatever dollars are, assuming the on and off ramps are open of the of um, the future, right? Theoretically, you can do the same thing with stocks, and theoretically, you can do the same with real estate. As I think about it, and as we talked about before, you know, when there's quantitative easing, where does that money flow? Right. When the money sits, especially big money sits, uh, the whales are sitting on the sidelines. And money's being printed. One is to, you know, is to pay off the debt obligations. But two, once the money gets paid, where does it get injected? And actually, both you and I discussed how it gets injected in the stock market. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the, the insidious thing about inflation and why, you know, it's it's so it, it it pains me so much because like you can hear people who are very left-leaning and they're like, oh, yeah, why doesn't the government just print some money and pay for college or print some money and, you know, pay, increase the, you know, uh, social security checks or even now Andrew Yang, the, the candidate, wants to just give universal basic income and just print money and just give it to people. What people do not understand is that when when you print money, the rich people can protect themselves from the effects of it because they own stocks and or real estate. But let's not talk about real estate because, A, I don't understand this topic too much. <laughs> B, maybe it's like a, we can do another podcast. But, but with stocks, what's, what's, uh, it, it's a pretty good protection against uh, inflation. Like it's proven. I've read academic articles that show that uh, it's a pretty good protection because like if you own an index fund, you pretty much own like a chunk of the economy. And whatever the government does with the money, uh, you know, the shareholders of the biggest companies in the economy will benefit from it. And what's even more cool is I read that 40, around 40 to 45% of the upside of the U.S. stock market is driven by, um, by global players that are non-U.S., which is pretty cool. So it's, it, it's both like people buying our stuff, so Chinese people buying iPhones, and also uh, external people buying shares in the stock market. So if you take both of those things, 
40% of the yield that you get when you hold an index uh, is, is external. So you basically benefit from all the money printing that happens in all over the world. So it's a pretty good case uh, for using the stock market as a store of value. Also, there's a book written by a Wharton professor called Stocks for the Long Run. Um, and it's really cool. I, I think the guy's name is Jeremy Siegel or something, but Stocks for the Long Run is the book. And he analyzed 400 years of stock market data, like from, from Napoleon's time, the crazy stuff. And the return has been remarkably consistent. It's always 7% above inflation. And, you know, half of the book, he explains where does this 7% come from? And uh, his kind of theory, if I'm not wrong, is something about it's a combination of population growth, uh, not in terms of people only, but also in terms of how much we consume. So like, you know, a, a person in 2010 consumes way more than a person in 1810, uh, but also uh, technology making stuff cheaper so you can increase your profit margin. So both of those things combined yield 7%. That's pretty good. And, and people have been using this. Uh, my argument is that Bitcoin can be even better. But before we get into that, what do you think about what we just said. Well, so so I, I look. I overall I agree with you. I, I do see stocks as, um, and I was a bit skeptical on this before. And you and I had this long conversation, which we should have recorded, <laughs> uh, but, but but we didn't. Um, and you you kind of convinced me to come around. And I and I do I do believe that the stock market has a nice. It's inflation proof in some ways, and then you get the steady seven percent return. The question then becomes: Can you pick stocks to beat the market? And whether you believe in Warren Buffett or others, you might not be able to, and you probably can't over a long period of time. Um, so the stock market gives you this solid seven percent. Let's talk about Bitcoin, but there's another uh, you know dimension to this, and the dimension is that you know if we're hitting some sort of tipping point. In terms of debt burden for countries, and money is really going to get printed at mass, especially for stable economies like the U.S. and others, because we've seen hyperinflation in countries like Nigeria, uh, Latin American countries, uh, Argentina, and mm -hmm. others, where money gets printed, right? And people flee from one, you know, the the, the wealthy are able to avoid it, the the poor, uh, unfortunately, cannot. Right? Money flees one way or the other, flows in and out where where it can. Ultimately, money goes to the most from the wealthy, right? To the most adopted financial instrument of the day. Right now, it's the stock market. People understand it. People put money in it, and like you said, it gives a nice seven percent return. My basic question and premise here is that: at what point do we believe there's going to be a tipping point? If we believe there's going to be a tipping point, where Bitcoin and other crypto assets are going to become much more mainstream which will allow them to have more and more money getting poured into into that asset class, which will create even more inflation-proof, uh, inflation-shield, if you will, uh, across crypto, right? So, I, but this also presumes, by the way, the underlying assumption here is that crypto has a lot of inflation. It's inflation-proof in many ways, and I, I think this is where you were going. Yeah, so, so I'm really happy you asked that question because basically if I want to make the case that Bitcoin is a better store of value than the stock market, I need to make the case that the government can somehow screw up um, with the stock market. In, in other, basically, another way to think about it, if the government prints 7% uh, 
per year and the stock market gives you 7% per year, I need to make the case that either the stock market will give you less than 7% per year in the future or that Bitcoin can give you more. And I'll tell you where my thesis is fundamentally, just from, from a kind of a first principles perspective. I think that money printing, beyond just inflating the money supply, it has a really bad effect of basically lower, creating artificially low interest rates, which make projects that wouldn't have been profitable otherwise, it makes them profitable, right? So basically you discount the cash flow with a lower percent, like let's say 1% instead of 7%. And so you build a bridge that wouldn't have been built otherwise uh, because the interest rates are artificially low. And I think that's the key point that will prevent the stock market from being a good store of value because as government prints more and more money, and you can see it, basically when you print money, growth is hurt. Like in the beginning of the 20th century, when we're like in the, on the gold standard, we had rates of growth of like five, six real, you know, 5%, 6% real GDP growth. And yeah, some people will say it's because we invented electricity and we invented all these technologies and airplanes that, you know, really um, made a step function, you know, difference in people's lives. And now we, we basically don't have any of these inventions. I don't buy that. I think we can keep inventing these things. And the reason why we're not inventing these things is, again, because the interest rates are artificially low. We don't invest in projects that are ambitious enough. And so I think that's the main thing going against the stock market. That's the main way the government fucks with the stock market, which is basically just causing companies to invest in things that are low yielding because the, the interest rates are artificially low. And you can see this like very clearly in Silicon Valley or just in general in, in big corporations, they borrow money at low interest rates and buy back their stocks, right? That's the stupidest thing. Like you don't want to buy back your stocks. You want to invest in projects, well, hire people, you know, build, get machines. Instead, they just invest their stocks because it's like an arbitrage. It's like I can borrow at artificially low rates and then increase the price of my stocks. So that's kind of the core of my argument. I think the government, the more money it prints, the worse the stock market will perform compared to something that's kind of objective and neutral like Bitcoin. Oh, that's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, so two things I want to react to. One thing I want to push you on, actually both things I want to push you on. One thing you said, there's a premise that in the beginning there were these big stepwise innovations done and now we're not necessarily investing in them anymore, but we could. I also have a problem with that argument, but a different one than you, because I do think there's been very serious stepwise innovations done in the last whatever years, the internet being the one of the major ones, right? Even things like the internet created completely new industries and value pools that we even didn't even know existed, right? So the well, internet is one. Then the whole platformization of the internet going into the Facebooks and Googles is a second. The uh, smartphone is a third complete mm -hmm. revolution and game changer that created the whole ecosystem of apps and really internet everywhere that l later on created in many ways the Bitcoin and the crypto atmosphere that we have now. I mean, Crypto in and of itself is a major technological revolutionary leap. So I, I don't think necessarily that we're not making the same leaps now. In fact, I'd argue the leaps now are actually greater than leaps before. Good. Then we agree because I, I completely agree with you there. Okay, good. Then we do agree. I, I just mentioned uh, an argument that I've heard from other people saying, oh, yeah, growth is slower because we've already invented all the impactful things. No, that's I don't, bullshit. I, yeah. That's bullshit. I, I do think 
the second part, right, about buybacks. So buybacks are interesting. This I forgot when this exactly started happening, but I, I believe it was somewhere around the 50s, if I'm not mistaken, maybe the 60s, where uh, the mind shift of uh, professional um, executives, if you will, went from a corporation service. It's, it's actually Friedman. Milton Friedman was a big mover of this when he changed the the emphasis of the corporation returning money to its shareholders, stakeholders, and its society to just its shareholders. And when that changed, when Friedman changed that mentality, um, it really changed the way managers, and I'm talking about C-level managers, start thinking about maximizing short-term profits, increasing the stock price, because their pay is tied to it. So if we, there's, there's ways of getting around just goosing up the stock price. Well, I do agree that when tax cuts come across or just money more more money printed companies buy their own stock but that's a very recent phenomenon um you know i i, I do think if we could just come back to to the crypto portion of it right like mm-hmm. we i think and everyone listening to this podcast would would agree that you know we established crypto as a, a money um i don't think we need to rehash that argument i think we could just take that premise at face value the question is, you know, do we have any evidence that crypto will be actually a higher inflation-proof asset or a better inflation-proof asset than the stock market? But the stock market has ups and downs. What we don't know is... Well, yeah, the evidence, uh, just yeah, on tell- that point, the evidence is the code, right? It, you can predict the inflation schedule of Bitcoin. And let's just talk about Bitcoin, not crypto, because like uh, specifically that's what kind of I understand more. Uh, Bitcoin will inflate at... You know, after this having in May 2020, it will inflate at one point something, 1.8% per year, uh, while the government's money will inflate at 7%. And we know that as a fact. We know that the government cannot reduce their inflation because otherwise they're not going to be able to meet their obligations. And we know that Bitcoin will inflate at less than that. Right? Uh, yes. Yep. Okay. What I but what I what I don't know is whether the whether when the money of the time, I guess what I what I what I don't know is the speed at which the dollars let's call them dollars get moved into Bitcoin. So here, here's what I mean: we know the Bitcoin's inflation is set in terms of the num the supply of it, right? And we do know that the government can fuck with the supply of money and print it. My question is the on and off ramp, the exchange from Bitcoin to dollars. So, for example, if you have one dollar buys you, let's call it one Bitcoin, right, today. Bitcoin's inflation goes to two Bitcoin in 10 years, Mm -hmm. right? And theoretically, to have the same exact exchange, you would have two dollars buying two Bitcoins, uh, whatever, in 10 years, right? If... If the dollar inflation rises, right, to where $2 is actually $4, so $4 buy $2 worth of goods, does that does that ratio stay, still stand? So in 10 years, $4 buys you two Bitcoin. Do you see what I mean? Or is it $5 or three? I think the premise there is what is the, how much liquidity is flowing from one market to the other? Because if there's a lot of liquidity, then you would expect the ratios to stay the same. Dollars can be inflated all they want, but the amount of Bitcoin is a is a perfect ratio of the inflationary value of the dollar uh, at the moment in time, right? So in a hyperinflation situation where you know a one it's you know one Bitcoin is one dollar 
next hour one bitcoin is two dollars the next hour one bitcoin is four dollars if there's almost perfect liquidity you can get in and out of bitcoin instantaneously and capture that same ratio of the, of the day if there's not perfect liquidity that's when you start seeing value disappear yeah i completely agree and that's a very good question and i don't think anybody knows the answer to it but i can tell you what what i'm thinking like what my hypothesis is so i just did a quickly a uh, a little google sheet here that just simulates what would happen in, let's say, 20 years. So let's say we start from $1, uh, sorry, one Bitcoin that costs $7,500, right? That's today's mm -hmm. price. Now, today's crash price. <laughs> yeah, today's crash price. So now what happens is I'm inflating the, um, the Bitcoin at 1.8%, just, just for the sake of consistency, right? So, and, and I'm inflating the $7,500 at 7%, right? Which is the, the amount of money the government is printing. So after 13 years, right, um, 1.25 Bitcoin will be worth $16,891. So if we divide this by 1.25, right, if nothing else changes, just because the dollars inflate faster than Bitcoin, one Bitcoin should be worth around $13,000. But that doesn't take into account, will people actually move, you know, that will require people to move dollars into Bitcoin. And we don't know. Now, I think that it will happen. I think that slowly people understand, and, and the, the way they understand is they just look at the price. So they see that the price of Bitcoin goes up, and the more people see it, the more they want to participate. And uh, the reason the price goes up is because people buy it. So it's kind of a, a nice little loop. But this whole thing is fueled by the fact that the government is printing money. And so that's kind of the naive version. But that still doesn't answer the question, okay, why not put in the stock market? Because also I could, the stock market would do even better than that. So the stock market, let's say it goes up in 7%, then we'll have $16,000 uh, instead of 13500 if I put in Bitcoin, because Bitcoin actually increases by 1.9%. And, and so you see what I mean? And I think my case is that the government printing money destroys more value than just the money it prints. Because people allocate the money in projects that are not, you know, doing anything good. And also we're not even talking about the fact that the government itself, uh, with its budget, invests the money in things that destroy value like wars right like wars are just stupid it's like you go to iraq you drop trillions of dollars in bombs and salaries to people that sit in the desert instead of like being in some university researching stuff like it's it's, it's just crazy so i think that that you know will make bitcoin much 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 more valuable than the stock market because the stock market basically you lose efficiency because some of it goes to the government and then you also lose some money that will flow into Bitcoin because it will just be a better store of value. Um, of course, I can't know it for a fact, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, people are not stupid and they're going to figure it out sooner or later. So, so I agree. But, we, but a lot of what you said is my personal problem with the Bitcoin community. Here we go. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> that's the reason, why we're called hardcore Bitcoin. That's right. That's right. Uh, no holds bar here. So the reason why I, I have this problem with the Bitcoin community is because 
you know, this is a very plausible argument and it's probably very right on a macro level. However, an average, the reason these things work on a macro level is because you're looking at kind of big macro movement forces. An average consumer, an average person is not thinking about this bullshit. They're not thinking about, and nor do they have the financial training or frankly the interest, I think, to think through, well, wow, if I put my money in the government and they're going to go to war, it's an inefficient use of funds, blah, 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 blah. They think very much more tactically, right? And they probably think of two things or three things. One, you know, I want less tax so that I can keep more money and spend it on whatever big slurpee I want or whatever the hell I want to go get, right? That's one. Two is if I don't agree with a certain policy or I do agree with a certain policy, essentially I want to allocate money in the way I want it to allocate and I want the government to be representative of my interests. Mm -hmm. But three, and I think what really drives the consumer uh, decision is kind of this whole greed and fear movement, right? This hey, the price of a something is increasing and I want to get in on the action and get rich quickly. And we know that with Bitcoin and crypto, this is where I think, you know, we can, I wanted to start off with this whole inflation-proof argument. And it's interesting to put all the cards on the table and talk about different assumptions. But the, pro the, the answer is we don't fucking know. We don't know whether the market, the stock market, or whether uh, Bitcoin is going to be more inflation-proof, which one in the long run will end up uh, the winner. And frankly, it doesn't really matter because we'll come back and look at this in 50 years and have some data points and hopefully look at this in 100 years and maybe, maybe those data points will change. What I think is what will matter is the fact that in Bitcoin, like you said, there is code that limits, hard limits, the supply of an asset. So as long as that asset still has some sort of monetary value, it is a money, and I think it's still used to exchange and to do something. I still do believe in the whole blockchain principles and premise of it because of the blockchain, if there's no need to record anything on a ledger and to store anything on a ledger, then money or no money, no matter how many people want to exchange this as a good, the good has less value, intrinsic value in and of itself because people will be less interested in it. But as long as it is a money and as long as no one forks it, which is becoming harder and harder to do, especially given that the big attacks that Bitcoin with withstood around what was it, 2017 mm -hmm. with the fork. The code stops right inflation from happening. The code says how many Bitcoins there will be. And because the supply is a 100% hard fixed, unlike any other commodity out there, even gold or others, you know, you can go and find more gold. Theoretically, it just costs a lot more to actually go discover it. You can drill for more oil offshore, just costs a lot more than the marginal cost of the next uh, barrel of oil. Unless you file some new, you know, uh, like an oil sh uh, shell that's closer to, to land is a lot higher. Right. So it exists. It's just a lot more cost prohibitive to get to it versus in Bitcoin. It, it literally does not exist anymore. Right. So the one as more and more people understand this premise that there is a hard ceiling on the number on the supply and therefore and it is also used as a money. Therefore, more people come in more into the asset. The rate at which the increase in Bitcoins and the price of Bitcoin increases from the sheer demand of it will create a virtual cycle and will outpace the stock market and de facto will, will become more inflation proof. Yeah, but my question is, why do you think 
that it will outpace the stock market because if, if the only thing going for Bitcoin is that it's limited in supply, the stock market is also limited in supply, right? Like you can't issue shares without giving, you know, the same amount to the current shareholders. But I don't, so I don't believe that. I don't believe that because you can always well let, I guess there's two different there's multiple levels of the stock market right you're talking about index funds or you're talking yeah, about individual for the sake of simplicity talk about an index fund I'm sure we can then extrapolate sure. it into companies but let's say well but uh, so actually company, yeah fine S&P 500 you, you always have more companies coming in to the uh, the the market, right? But you have more and more ones, right? sure like in the index, itself. only in the index, right? But you can have theoretically more and more companies on a public market selling public shares. But it doesn't even matter if you have more companies, right? If more companies directly uh, supply increases of things you can buy, but the market kind of regulates. If, if it's shit, no one's going to buy it. If it's expensive, people are still going to stick to Or if it's good, people are still going to stick to those blue chip uh, players and so on. But the stock market does have much more choice. You know, you theoretically can have more and more players come in. You theoretically could have, imagine there's a world of all of a sudden this, you know, huge breakthroughs, a huge now breakthrough in AI, a huge breakthrough in medicine, a huge breakthrough in uh, telecommunications, a huge breakthrough in, um, I don't know, education. You have five mega Googles coming to the market, one from each of these industrial verticals that I mentioned. People are going to want to invest in all of them, right? A lot of money is going to get poured in. And then it's another micro supply demand question about does the money get allocated across these five or six major players that I just mentioned or not and how. But the point is that the stock market by nature is fluid, right? Versus Bitcoin by nature is fixed. It is not a stock, right? It's a more of a commodity, if you will, in today's terms. It is definitely a commodity. Yeah. But what, you know, what's cool about what you just said, uh, it, it connects to, I was just listening to this guy, um, Eric Weinstein. I think he's a, a VC or of some kind. Uh, he has a podcast called Portal. And he just said something that drove me crazy. He said, I'm really worried about the fact that more and more stuff are becoming digital because digital stuff erodes margins. Like, you know, when music was printed on records or CDs, you could sell it. When music became digital, the margins became really, really thin. And it really worries me because, like, this can disrupt capitalism and can disrupt democracy or something like that. He said, once you can't price things efficiently, um, you know, democracy is gone. I really didn't understand that. Wait, can you, can you say that again? <laughs> I, I don't understand his argument about democracy, but basically he's worried that margins are being eroded because more and more of our life becomes digital and just digital things, it's easy to copy them. So in that sense, you're right that the stock market is not limited. I wanted to say, no, it is limited because if you own a share of the S&P 500, you own a certain percentage of the top 500 companies. And then, yeah, you know, one company can replace another one, but that's relatively stable. But you're right. A disruption can come. Imagine we disrupt healthcare now by inventing something that prevents a lot of the diseases that people suffer from. That is bad for business. You know, that is like eroding margins. And in that sense, the stock market is not fixed and it can be disrupted. So that's something really good going for Bitcoin. In a sense, when you hold Bitcoin, you just benefit from all of the innovation by just like increasing your purchasing power more and more. So if you hold Bitcoin and healthcare gets disrupted, that's awesome. 
the cost of healthcare will go down. Yeah. Your Bitcoin will buy you more healthcare. But if you hold healthcare stocks and like, you know, the cost of healthcare gets uh, disrupted, then you're kind of screwed. Um, and so that's a very good point that I didn't think of. Another interesting thing about uh, the whole idea of like the stock market not being fixed. I remember once I had a professor um, that said, do not invest in commodities. And his whole thesis about not investing in commodities, he said, investing in commodities is betting against human innovation because, you know, um, aluminum, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago was one of the most expensive metals. It was much more expensive than gold because before electricity, it was very hard to extract aluminum. So you would go to eat with a king in Europe and he would serve you food on aluminum plates. That's a true story. And but what <laughs> happened is they came up with electricity and aluminum smelting just reduced the price of aluminum. So he says any commodity that you hold on to uh, is basically betting against human innovation. And that, that was his argument against gold, pretty much like even if the gold on, on Earth is limited, at some point we'll have like spaceships, we'll fucking mine asteroids or whatever. <laughs> and Bitcoin is like a virtual commodity that exactly resists this thing because of the difficulty adjustment. So basically, it does not. It is not a bet against human innovation. The the faster the computers we have that can mine it, it's just becoming more secure. And if one day I just heard something interesting, if one day we we invent quantum computers, I was going to go there. Just fork Bitcoin and have a quantum encryption that is resistant to quantum decryption, and then it's, it just works. It's awesome. It's like betting. It's not betting against human innovation. Yeah, I mean, there's. <laughs> I was gonna go there because uh, on one hand, you theoretically can just make you know harder uh, puzzles to crack, if you will. Uh, quantum is a little bit of a harder beast because of the chips that you need for quantum, right? So you have uh, the the current crypto chip, the chips to essentially crack the current crypto. Um, it, it it becomes a transition when you have quantum chips. Um, they're very easy to crack. They're essentially not good for current crypto cryptography. When you have current cryptography, um, those chips are not really great for for quantum. And so, and when it's fully quantum versus fully current crypto, and and this is going a little bit you know beyond uh, my skis here because I I know yeah, I know this too. you know I don't know much about quantum computers <laughs> right. But the chipsets you need, it's not just a one or a zero transition. As you're transitioning slowly over to quantum, basically the quantum chips are very easy to crack with, uh, you know, with the current algorithms until they're fully into quantum. And so that's the trick of transferring from, from uh, the current cryptography into quantum cryptography and then using the right chipsets to, to essentially get us there. But again, we can have a whole separate discussion about this one uh, if you and I go go a little bit deeper there. But it's I just, <laughs> let's see up this topic. It's not a quick translation to quantum. I just had a funny thought, which is I bought an Antminer S9 uh, to try to mine Bitcoin at home um by bitmain and it, this thing makes so much noise it's just crazy so i tried to put it in our extra bedroom and my wife really complained she's like what is this noise so i'm gonna tell her wait till i have to bring in the liquid nitrogen for the That's quantum right. computer <laughs> to mine the quantum resistant bitcoins tell her tell her it's a white noise machine for your three kids <laughs> yeah, totally 
Um, but yeah, so 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 it, it's you know it's interesting this premise of this digital commodity that is uh, proof or, or proofed against you know human innovation. The whole quant I was going to say quantum is one of these innovations that can actually digitally you know disrupt this commodity. But uh, here's another thing I think it goes against a lot of the the, the things I hear in, in, the, in the crypto community. The crypto community basically says. You know, Bitcoin is here to stay, use or not. You know, what's the difference between fiat and crypto? You basically want it to money, and enough people believe it's an asset. It's a motive, uh, a value translation. It's value translation. I do think, though, that that's a bit of a bullshit argument. I mean, it's a great argument from a macro level. It's a great argument academically. But in principle, if Bitcoin loses its transaction ability or people stop using it and just sit on it if everyone is a holdler then i think it loses more it just uh it, it there's gonna be a loss of value over time it's I'm just going sure, to erode you know? tell I, me why. why why do you think no i mean first of all make the case why you think let's say nobody i'll tell you i'll tell you let's why. say the only transactions are yeah. buying it on an exchange yeah and and moving it to your cold storage and just that's it or moving it to an exchange to sell it to dollars. Let's say those are the only transactions on the network. Why would that mean that it doesn't have value? It, it, no, it does. Definitely has or value. Value, value will be eroded. So here's here's my here here are my assumptions. Okay, and maybe let's paint a simplistic world. If you have a world where it's not used, all it's used for is a store value. That means that the value either has to be stable and increasing for people to have interest in it. In general, people don't have interest in assets that just have very stable value. They don't invest in it. Yeah, I agree. Right? Exactly. So the less people that are investing in it. So let's say... Let's oh, say I the, didn't say that people will not invest in it. I just said that the only transactions that would happen is people buying it and holding it. But more and more people will be buying it. But I don't think so. That's what I'm saying. I don't think more and more people will be buying Why? it. Because if it doesn't have any use... And and you know, prove me wrong here. I'm kind of I'm kind of what going off of. Gold today? I don't think, but I don't think people I don't think people consider gold as a great store of value. But like if you actually look but at gold in some countries in like India, sure, in, in some sure in some countries. But again, this is this is we need to figure out. Well, are we in a world where you can only buy what's currently available to you? Right. In that case, you're absolutely right. If it were in a world where theoretically you have an option of buying whatever asset class in the world that you can, you would put money in the U.S. stock market as a, a long-term, like this same Indian person will go and buy, buy money in the in the U.S. stock market. Not they if they have can't. capital controls. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Yeah. So that's the point, right? They cannot. There's There are local capital controls or other things that prevent them from doing that. And locally, gold can be a good store of value. But I'm just talking about from a high level first principles perspective, is gold a better store of value than the market? It's not. Especially now, more recently, it's just not. It hasn't really moved in value in, in, in forever. And I'm, I, you know, we can look up the, we can look up the, uh, the price over, over a certain period, yeah. but, but I, I don't believe so it's, it's, a great it's, point. it's I yeah. agree. You know when it was performing much better than the stock market? When the U.S. went off the gold standard. So if you look at the performance of gold versus stocks from like 73 or something up until whatever, like 2000 and something, it outperformed the stock market by a lot. And the reason is that 
when we went off the gold standard, suddenly people started understanding, oh no, like the dollar is being debased. And even though like recently 30 or 40 percent of the U.S. population thinks that the U.S. dollar is backed by gold, which is bullshit, but um, more and more people understood it. So more and more people put money into gold and then it performed really well. It went from like $35 to like $1,500 per ounce. But then what happened, it just stabilized at 1500 and stopped growing. And I think the reason why it stopped growing, I mean, I'm not a huge gold expert. Um, there's people talking about like collusion and the fact that, you know, the central banks own such a huge chunk of gold that once they saw it go up, they started dumping it to scare people off. Other people say that the, you know, the ETFs that were, uh, you know, created for gold, they, they didn't actually own that gold. So you could financially manipulate. I'm not a huge expert, but I think it did perform much better in the stock market when it was the only alternative to store your money uh, in, a, in a place that's not speculative like the stock market. Um, and I think the same thing will happen with Bitcoin, only on a much, much larger scale. Because our economy now is much larger. But why was gold the only alternative? Well, what else could you put your money to? In? Let's oil. say 1975. Oil. No, but oil increases. So are you familiar with the concept of stock to flow? Yeah, yeah. So oil has a terrible stock to flow. Like, you cannot sit on a barrel of oil and hope that it appreciates. No, but sure. But my, I guess my argument is silver, okay? Um, okay so we can silver... Underperformed gold because of the, the stock to flow. Um, there's a book called The Bitcoin Standard by Satya Dingamus. Yeah. He talks exactly about empires that went with silver instead of gold as their base uh, kind of currency, and they really suffered for it. It like destroyed their whole economy. So basically, people want the hardest, the hardest asset to inflate. They want to store their value in that. Uh, and I think that's what Bitcoin's creators tried to do. They tried to create the hardest asset. What I'm not understanding, and, and this is the, our whole discussion, is like, is it better to park our money in that hardest asset, or is it better to put it to productive use in the stock market and just like suffer the inflation? Basically, I mean, I don't know. I think it's like if the government inflates money at 7% and the stock market gives you 7% above that, theoretically, Bitcoin should give you 14%. It should give you like... The sum of the two, because it's Why? not being inflated. Because it's not being inflated, and so you can always use your Bitcoin as collateral, or you can lend it to people, and and then they can put it to productive use. Because what is capital? Capital is just like a store. Like if you have a machine, but you don't know what machine you need, then you store your money in dollars until you figure out what machine you need for your factory, and then you spend the dollars to buy the machine. There's no reason why Bitcoin couldn't be that store of value, and you still use it to do productive things. I mean, that's kind of my theory. My theory is basically it should perform as well as the stock market plus seven percent. It should give us like fourteen percent per year. But and but then then is that the threshold, right? If it gives you lower than that, then you should go to the stock market because it's technically underperforming. It's um. It's bar, if you will, and if it gives you higher than, as long as it gives you higher than, then you go with Bitcoin. That's a good point, but I mean, can you know ahead of time? Like you have to kind of make the decision before you know if it 
that's better or worse. Sure, no, that's the, I think that that's fair. But I, you probably after a while can start trending and seeing where you know on average what the returns are. But then is that even a fair uh, way of of looking at it, right? If if Bitcoin theoretically should give you at least the stock at least the stock market plus inflation, right? I'm not sure the inflation is is necessarily seven percent. Um, is that is that a global figure that you got or? U.S. inflation is a lot lower. Well, again, the the inflation of the money supply, it's not an inflation in prices. It's just like by how much does the money supply grow. I see how you think. 7% globally. Some countries are more, some countries are less. The U.S. was like 6.8. Last I checked, uh, you know, China was like 7 point something. But it's still, uh, it's still very, very, it's shockingly high. Like, you know, we think of inflation as 2%. It's not 2 it's 7 And the crazy thing is, if you compound 7%, you see, you kind of lose like half of your money in like, whatever, like 5, 7, 10 years. It's, it's really bad because it's like compounding. So, I don't know. I mean, look, we're kind of running on the hour. So I can just sum up. <laughs> It's really good because this conversation basically kind of crystallized my thought about why I think Bitcoin can be better than the stock market. And I can sum it up very um, concisely. Eloquently. Eloquently. By saying, yeah, basically, to get return, you have to take your capital and put it to productive use. Now, for example, you could own land and, you know, rent out the land to a farmer. Or you could own a machine and rent out the machine to a factory, or you could own whatever, whatever capital you own, you you make it productive. The problem is technology erodes the profitability of that capital. If you own land, if suddenly people figure out how to do farming, like in a stacked building, uh, then your land becomes less valuable. If you own a machine and someone comes with a better machine, your capital becomes less valuable. So it's this balance of like the technological innovation that erodes your um, value and the value you can get out of it. On top of that, you have like the government just stealing 7% of that. Bitcoin doesn't like do the productive stuff, but it is completely immune to technological innovation because of the difficulty adjustment. So no matter what happens with technology, it behaves the same. And it is immune to the government manipulation, which just like prints money and it steals like 7% of your stuff every year. And I think that's what will make it better than the stock market, a combination of those things. And people will figure that out and then more and more money will pour into it. And so I think we as the early participants in the network will make a lot of more money than the 7, 14% or whatever, because like we still have all the upside, just like gold when it was like $35 an ounce. That's like my argument, I think. I'm sold. I'm buying some Bitcoin today. Also <laughs> because the price just got depressed. This has been fun. Good opening yeah. podcast. I think we have a lot to discuss later on. We need to study up on the gold. We need to study up on chipsets and the quantum leap, if you will. Uh, but I think I think it'll be interesting to explore all the topics of Bitcoin. From, uh, you know, we start with the financial markets perspective which is important, but we should talk about, you know, implementation. We could talk about capital constraints. We could talk about use. We could talk about that versus the actual blockchain and whether the blockchain has, you know, a purpose um, in, 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 in society, really. Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus others and 
you and I both are standing slightly on opposite sides of that argument, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and many many more. Yeah, and I would also like to discuss kind of more societal things, where, which is like how do different incentives, mm-hmm. you know, what do they do to to society and you know like governments. So there's many many things we can talk about. But this has been really fun. Uh, we're going to put our Twitter handles in the show notes. Please reach out to us with ideas, questions, comments, or anything else. And uh, we'll sign off for now. Signing off for now. See you guys later. Bye-bye.